This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing Mutant City Blues Now. A map of Fort Cumberland. The Mary Hill Museum. And Ira Einhorn. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut, where the walls are stabbed by red and blue lights. There's a sound of sirens in the background. Oh, and uh, also there's a giant laser blast across the table, a big burn mark for some reason, because we're back in the gaming hut, but we're back in a super police procedural version of the gaming hut in honor of the new edition, the second edition of Mutant City Blues. We have a question, a timely question from beloved Patreon backers, Lisa Steele and Neil Fortier, who would like guidance on how to play Mutant City Blues in a post-George Floyd world. Robin, it is your game, and take it. Take it and share it. Right. Um, and so Mutant City Blues 2nd Edition has been in print for a little while. Uh, we've held off on promoting it uh, due to the incredibly stressful events of uh, this summer and the exposure to uh, many more people. Uh, just what a gigantic policing problem that... Uh, the United States has, and that most other jurisdictions uh, with police have. So uh, if you are conscious of this and still want to run a police procedural game, uh, here's the the guidance that we uh, have for you. And of course, if the answer is, I don't want to run a police procedural game, that is like <laughs> That is also a valid answer. <laughs> is also a valid answer, something that you yeah. should be aware of. And uh, maybe you kind of think you uh, do, and you might get a few episodes in, and you still want to tap out. So yep. first of all, know your limitations and know your relationship to the underlying... In the, in the immortal words of very, very bad policeman, Harry Callahan, know your limitations. <laughs> yeah. Now, also, though, you should know that the new version of the game, conveniently enough, has a private eye mode so that if you uh, want to be more like Jessica Jones and have the uh, standard semi-hostile relationship to the police uh, that is known in uh, that mystery genre and is also uh, may uh, mirror your own, that's a solution right there. You can you can do that. And that's all in the book. You don't need me to explain that uh, any further. However, there are a couple of other things that if you still want to do a cop show with superpowers, you can still take into account your feelings about uh, a policing and the necessity for police reform. Conveniently enough, the setting of this game is 10 years in the future based on wherever it is that you start the game. So if you're playing in 2021, uh, the game is set in 2031. And the world is different insofar as 1% of the population has acquired uh, mutant superpowers, and they've all acquired it from the same source, uh, which is basically the premise of the game, is that forensics applies to superpowers 
because you can study them. They're various tests. You know when someone's been mind controlled. You know uh, you can do a test to see when there's fire on a scene. You can tell whether it's created by mutant means or just ordinary regular fire. Uh, and also you know uh, using a, a in-game and game artifact called the Quaid diagram where all of these powers relate on the genome so that uh, different people with powers have uh, them clustered together. And so if you uh, go to a crime scene and you see that there's uh, someone uh, with webbing and someone else has uh, used uh, radiation projection, you know that you've got two culprits because those things are too far apart on the Quaid diagram. So because uh, we have that future jump, which originally was designed just to allow all of those things to have happened, to allow society to progress to the point where there is a special heightened crimes investigative unit, and there's been social change around that, you can also decide how much policing has changed over the course of a decade. And the, your two choices there are aspirational um, or diagnostic. So uh, if you go for the um, aspirational mode, uh, things have gotten significantly better in the way that you, uh, the GM, and the other players want the, them to have gotten better. Um, and depending on your own uh, personal policy desires, uh, that might be that the police are the way that you want them to be in, the way they're usually portrayed on most police shows. Or it could be something quite dramatically different. There are some folks who propose, for example, that policing becomes much more of a civilian agency. There's essentially no uh, uniform patrols. And there's a small group of investigators who still look into serious crimes, but they're uh, somehow not police, that they're investigators of, uh, who go around unarmed and they're they're you know, quite different than we have today. So if you have specific ideas of what that would look like and want to explore it in a game and want to portray it positively, the 10-year jump uh, is there for you and makes that uh, make sense. Um, or you could go for the uh, perhaps uh, the definitely bleaker and definitely more uh, a realistic option of things have changed a little for a while and then they got bad again. And it's part of the milieu in which the characters find themselves because it's baked into the concept of the game and has been all along that you are part of a a new disregarded group who are also police officers and face all of the tensions that real black and other uh, BIPOC people do uh, when they uh, try to join the police force. So you can go for uh, sort of a gritty critique of policing uh, and examine those issues, as I think we'll see actual police procedural TV shows uh, increasingly do in the future. I don't think the genre is going to disappear. And again, that's totally up to you and your group. And so lots of people who have social critiques don't want to interact with them at the gaming table. So you got to find out uh, whether your group wants to do that or not. But this would certainly provide a, an opportunity to do that. And if you're very interested in the whole issue of police reform, I do have one book recommendation, uh, which is a book called Ghetto Side by uh, Jill Leovy. And she examines the dichotomy between the uh, murder police, as they're known in Baltimore, and the patrol officers and how a tight regime of, of patrolling neighborhoods, especially with cops who are mostly from outside and, uh, you know, hassling people and cracking down on them. It makes it harder for the uh, homicide investigators to successfully crack cases. And her thesis is that the reason you see out-of-control murder rates in certain American cities is that because the police are also perceived as the enemy and no one ever dare go to the cops and won't talk to homicide detectives, that that then requires people to resort to personal violence in order to resolve uh, disputes over uh, violence and, and killings. And so it sets up a, a circle of reprisal. And she establishes that that's a dynamic that exists uh, cross-historically, cross-culturally, and it's something that happens in uh, in some American cities. So the characters in Mutant City Blues are definitely the homicide police. They don't just investigate homicides, but they investigate major crimes. And it's those people who you may well conclude still need to exist and can still be sympathetic, if not heroic, uh, in a role-playing context. Another possibility is to uh, head into the comics for inspiration and really crack down on codes versus killing. Um, don't take your uh, cues, as I may have hinted, from Dirty Harry Callahan, who is a very bad cop. Uh, take your cues from Superman, who is a very 
good space cop and doesn't kill anybody. And you can enforce that in just sort of a meta sense where you, the GM, talk to the players and say, this is a game with a code against killing. It's in a DC comic book. No one kills anybody. We're not the Punisher. We're not old school 1939 Batman. This is a modern day comics code authority book. And that's how we're going to play it. And you, the GM, then do not force the players into dilemmas in which killing someone is the good way out or the clever way out. And the players do not indiscriminately blow up people's gas tanks with their laser vision while chasing a criminal. And everyone agrees to sort of tone it down. You can have in-game enforcement of that as well, not just with vicious stability penalties after you've uh, killed somebody, but also... In the real world, in many police forces, if you, if the, if a policeman is involved in a, a fatal shooting, they go through psych evaluations. They have to fill out a bunch of forms. They're taken off the beat for a while. Often their gun is confiscated. If you're a, a mutant, uh, cop, your, your powers can't be confiscated, but maybe you've got to wear a, a, a bracelet that's a monitoring bracelet or a, or a power dampening, uh, ankle, uh, monitor. And, uh, therefore you have, uh, you're only at X percentage of your powers for some period of time until the internal affairs is determined that you, nope, you are, it was just a one-time thing and you're not a, a, a rogue, dangerous, uh, super, uh, you're, you're just a, a, a cop who got unfortunate. And again, fatal incidents with cops are not super common outside of cop shows in all of New York city in 2019, there were only 17 fatalities involving the police, which is maybe 17 too many, but is certainly far less than a city of 8 million people with 20,000 cops. You would think mathematically would be involved in. So there you go. You can be the, the mutant squad that is not involved in any of those 17 cases you're involved in the other 25,000 cases that don't involve that kind of thing. You're off, you know, accurately portraying the non-shooting part of the cops. And, and the game itself has the whole moral spiral issue and whether you uh, are corrupt or not. And the, the psychic toll of, of that uh, is already in the game. So yeah. you don't have to do any additional work that's just central to it and has been punched up a bit by Gar in the second edition to uh, incorporate sort of a, a version inspired by uh, the shock cards from from the Yellow King. And as far as looking at models for how uh, police procedural shows uh, then inflect your uh, scenarios, the game itself, uh, even the original first edition, is, is based, uh, I think, more on the police procedurals that I think are particularly noteworthy and do have a more realistic version of policing in them. The Shield, of course, is famously about a squad of corrupt cops and the moral spiral of that is entirely part of that show and it's based on a real uh, squad of corrupt cops in LA. Homicide, Life on the Street, and uh, The Wire uh, both uh, portray a realistic version of uh, policing. The Wire in particular shows how the uh, drug war is uh, part of a futile and destructive cycle that uh, also makes it harder for the uh, homicide cops to uh, do their job. Um, somewhat more ambivalently, also, NYPD Blue is on one hand definitely a uh, pro-cop show, but on the other hand, I think, is the one that really shows you the cop, cop worldview and the darker side of that worldview as well. So, uh, and, and the test, basically, to media depictions of police is does it, uh, to what extent do they depict the neighborhoods that are being policed as, you know, uh, wars, war zones or places of, of danger to which heroic cops are risking getting uh, murdered when they venture into them versus uh, places where people who need help live. And I think uh, probably uh, that your uh, player characters want to feel, however you cast it, that they are the people who are helping folks. And you, uh, in this case, should be uh, helping your fellow mutants and and everybody else. And I guess the way that we can help you, since we're helping everybody, is to help you uh, into a fascinating commercial opportunity and then into another hut. The 
the second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrain store. The Compass Rose and the Mercator projection tell us we've much more entered that most navigable of huts, the Cartography Hut. And uh, Ken, uh, this time we're here to uh, join the British Library in celebrating the fact that they've taken uh, the King's Topographical Collection and put it online for your uh, zooming in and zooming out and downloading pleasure. Uh, and this is the map collection of King George III, uh, who, although, you know, he had... Uh, some points against him, for example, trying to prevent America. Yeah, uh, he did. He did have a pretty cool map collection, and now uh, everybody can look at it. After after a mere two hundred and fifty years, good for you, Britain. <laughs> well, the, the first two hundred years they couldn't have put it online. Well, still, <laughs> you got to start the clock a, a little while back. All right, fine, whatever. Anyways, good for you, Britain. Uh, slightly less assiduously. Uh, the, the map collection is, of course, very heavy in 18th century militaria. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of seemingly random topographical maps of just places in Great Britain, because this was also the time when the Ordnance Survey was making all the maps of, uh, of Britain uh, in the same way that centralizing monarchies were doing in Austria, in France, in plenty of other countries, putting together their own versions of uh, the Ordnance Survey or mili military maps in general, because as you can tell from the name Ordnance Survey, the maps are not just there to help people figure out which direction quivering on strine is the maps are there to figure out if the peasants and uh chartists rise up in quivering on strine what road do you take to march on them and that's uh sort of the direction that the king's collection goes although there's also ephemera and nonsense as happens with any uh great collector even if they're not crazy yes and, and the very first ones that you pull up uh, when you look at just the whole collection there's some really cool maps of the, of the solar system and the Zodiac and stuff. But we've done other, hey, let's talk about a map that you will then have to click on the link and look at to follow along at home segments mm -hmm. uh, where we've done uh, those uh, more sort of cosmic scale maps. So I thought I would find uh, something not quotidian, but rather something that looks like you could just pull it exactly from a role playing game. So let's find a map that has buildings and there's numbers in the buildings, and there's a legend in the side to tell you uh, what those uh, buildings are. And uh, with my cursory little search, I happen on one that is labeled a plan of the fort and barracks at Mount Pleasant in Maryland. Speaking of, uh, of the British in America, and uh, this turns out to be a fort that was briefly called uh, Fort Mount Pleasant, but is better known under the name it almost immediately acquired, and that is Fort Cumberland. Uh, which was uh, at one point the westernmost fort in the British Empire and uh, was sort of the, the period we're talking about here is the French and Indian War. And so it's built in 1754 at uh, the confluence of Wills Creek and the uh, Potomac. So did Fort Cumberland, uh, was that already known to you before we started? Um, I've heard of Fort Cumberland because it's a, uh, as you say, it's it's a place where not just British military movements came out of, but also uh, the colonists uh, attempting to subvert British 
power by hiring some Indians to blaze trails across the Cumberland Gap, uh, which name comes from the same uh, stretch of the world, uh, so that they could have better access to the lands of other Indians. And that's the that's the American spirit right there. Uh, so Fort Cumberland was also at the uh, head of a trail uh, that led over the Appalachians into the Ohio country. And that is why it was also a strategic outpost for uh, threatening the French control of said Ohio country. So in the French and Indian War, a young Virginia militia colonel named George Washington, or I'm sorry, young militia major named George Washington. Yes, uh, sets a young out, officer that hated British. He is, no, he's an officer of the lovely and talented Virginia militia. He was never an officer of the hated British, something that I think he took very personally. <laughs> so be that a lesson to you, the hated British. He set out on his expedition to uh, show the flag uh, in the Ohio Valley and accidentally begin the French and Indian War, which is what he did in 1754 and came marching back in a hurry from that expedition. And then when uh, British General Braddock took George Washington with him to attack the fort at the confluence of the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers that would later become Fort Pitt, Washington accompanied him again out of Fort Cumberland, uh, where Braddock marched the men into an ambush and all of them got slaughtered. So, uh, George Washington then leads the troops back to the fort and he now having been showing up at the fort an awful lot. Spoiler alert, George Washington did not die at age 23. (laughs) Yes, right. He, uh, having shown up at the fort an awful lot, then got into a little bit of of a pissing match with the uh, British regular commander of the fort, who was only a captain, uh, but who also pointed out that as a British regular commander, it didn't matter that George Washington was a major. He outranked him, and that uh, that got up George Washington's nose uh, very effectively. I, I guess something that you should know when you look at the at the map is that the, the whole thing is made of logs. It, there's no stone anywhere involved. Uh, so what looks like a a cool Vauban bastion there is indeed a Vauban bastion, but it's one made out of logs, like an old timey Western fort, not a uh, something made out of brick or stone, like a fort that you will see on the East Coast or in Europe. Right. And it's built on a, a nice little uh, hill, little flat promontory. Uh, I don't know if, if that was a natural hill. It must have been looking at this other picture of it. Yeah. And I guess if we should go through the uh, the later history as well before we decide how to turn this into a game artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was abandoned in 1765, uh, but I, it got a it got a second le- lease on life, Ken, during the Whiskey Rebellion. What was that all about? The Whiskey Rebellion was the uh, good people of Western Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia who lived by turning corn into whiskey and did not want to have to pay taxes when they took something that was cheap, like corn, and turned it into something that was expensive, like whiskey. They felt that it was their corn and their whiskey, and they didn't sell it or do anything to anybody, and they shouldn't be paying taxes on it. And the federal government felt differently, as the federal government has since there was a federal government. And George Washington himself led 10,000 men into the hills of Maryland and had a brief chit-chat with the whiskey farmers, and they agreed maybe they should pay just a little bit of tax. Because after all, they'd voted against the people who were defeated by the guys who voted for the tax. So what's fairer than that? Um, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, as many rebellions against George Washington did, uh, petered out into nothingness. And then the fort was once more abandoned. Right. Uh, we, we can imagine, though, a shot where an older but wiser Washington is just petting the side of the fort and going, I remember you, my old friend. Ah, uh, this fort. <laughs> so close to Pittsburgh. Yeah. And yet so good. So, By that so time, good. the fort is 30 years old. It is uh, no longer strategically necessary because uh, unless you are trying to overawe bourbon farmers, it is not uh, in the in, in the middle of anything. The frontier has moved past it and it is uh, abandoned uh, after that and becomes part of the town of Cumberland where. Uh, it was probably part of the town of Cumberland, uh, by then anyway. And, uh, eventually, uh, was turned into, uh, was turned into nothing because it was knocked down, but a uh, Episcopal church was built on it. Emmanuel Episcopal church built in 1849 on that hill to, uh, spiritually guard, uh, Frederick of Maryland, where the fort had merely physically guarded it. Right. And, and does so to this day. And hey, hey, role mm-hmm. players. 
there's fort tunnels underneath the, the church even today. So that brings us. So that that's Yes, that transitions us to the question of how do we uh, put this uh, map in a game? What is the the esoteric thing? Do we focus on 1755 and the Braddock expedition? Did uh, something terrible happen in Pittsburgh that followed George Washington back to the fort? Was there some sort of working that imprisoned that thing? Was it gritty? What do we do? Do we want to focus <laughs> on... Gritty's, Gritty's from Philadelphia, Robin. And I point out that I did not say that, Philadelphians. Throw your batteries at Robin. Well, uh, <laughs> how do you, there may be a bunch of Gritties. Maybe this is the sole surviving Gritty. This is the Pittsburgh Gritty. This is why Pittsburgh doesn't have a Gritty, is because its uh, Gritty was trapped under Fort Cumberland. And they had to build a whole church to contain it. Exactly. I mean, when you look at Gritty, you, you're, right. you know there's not just one Gritty. There's got to be multiple Gritties. Yeah. He's, or, or perhaps some other entity, Ken. is clearly a harbinger of something else happening. Yes, or, or perhaps a non-copyrighted entity. What, what would you uh, uh, do with this map? I mean, first of all, the map is just a great map. I mean, you, can, you don't have to use it as the fort in, uh, in, in Maryland. You can steal it and make it the map of a fort anywhere in the Enlightenment world uh, by turning it into a stone fort. You can put it in Europe uh, by leaving it a log fort. You can put it basically anywhere on the frontier of America during the 18th century. Um, that same model might be a fort if you're playing, say, you know, a, a game of uh, Cossacks and shamans in Siberia. They they would have built the, the basically the same sort of fort out in their wildy woods. Uh, so just the the layout of it is great, and as you point out, it's like a proper role playing fort. There's uh, a key and and places to go, and there's a you can, it says where the magazine is, which is the place where all the gunpowder is. So you the the players, if you're playing the heroic uh, Indians that are trying to blow up the hated British, you know where to you know throw your uh, your fire spell in. Or if you're playing the the heroic bourbon farmers of of Western Maryland and you're trying to strike a blow for not paying taxes ever, same deal. Um, there's a lot of uh, other sorts of buildings and things that give you sort of a sense of what is considered necessary for a map. The interesting detail that the hospital is outside the walls of the fort is kind of fun um, because I guess they don't want sick people in their fort ruining it for everybody. But that's a, that's a fun detail that I don't believe that you knew or that I certainly didn't know. Um, I'm not sure I would have put the hospital that close to the river myself. Yeah. I, I certainly, if I was drawing a fort from scratch, wouldn't put the, uh, put the hospital outside the fort. So that's a difference between yeah. uh, 21st century thinking and uh, 18th century thinking. Yeah. So uh, just there, it's a it's a it's a lovely um, example of of how to build a fort. For some reason, they have an embrasure pointing back into the sort of main ground of their own fort from the banked and stockaded uh, sort of Vauban star shaped fort into the just stockaded more Fort Apache sort of fort. And I take it that's because they expect the the, the back end, the, the, the tippy top of the fort on the map, uh, to be overrun by Indians and or Frenchmen. And so they have to be able to fire into their own uh, space. But it's an interesting descent from sort of uh, Mott and Bailey uh, castle construction, that same sort of structure. And that tells you that tactically, if you are the uh, player characters and you're trying to invade a fort held by the hated British or the hated Cossacks or whomever... You maybe don't want to start all the way at the tippy top uh, by the river and uh, have to run all the way across that uh, open space, area G, uh, because uh, the hated British can get their cannons leveled and fill them with grape shot and mow you down as you cross uh, the company's parade. And for a modern scenario where you either know from the jump or discover in the middle of your investigation that the uh, things that are coming out of the tunnels to haunt Cumberland or whatever other town you decide that the uh, church uh, turns out to have been built on a on an old fort foundation, you can then have them discover this map. And from there, you have to figure out where is the there's rivers. The creature uh, seems to be somewhat aquatic coming and going. Uh, where do you go to find it? How do you trap it? And so you could use the, the, the map as your uh, sort of device where the players decide uh, where they search for the, the creature. And uh, you would then cross-reference this with a, a map of modern-day uh, Cumberland and try to make sure that the, the scale matches and figure out, you know, where exactly the next attack is coming or uh, where it's, uh, 
you know, where it's, if it's going off to spawn, where it's uh, going off to do that, or is there something else exciting we could uh, put uh, in the tunnels other than a, uh, a monster that uh, followed them from Pittsburgh. Um, you can also, I suppose, uh, if George Washington, uh, when he marches out to uh, begin the French and Indian War, let's say that the thing that begins the war is that Washington, he he's George Washington, for gosh sakes. He knows better than to simply march into French-held territory without a plan. That would be the act of a callow youth, not George Washington, the guy in the dollar bill. Um, so he must have stolen some sort of powerful artifact that the French had um, and maybe the French stole it from uh, the Indians, from the Shawnee or the Potawatomi or the any of the Indians in Ohio, and they brought it back. And it, uh, let's say it's a, it, it could be a, a, a sacred peace pipe, or it could be a, a spear, something uh, of, of great power. And the French have it, and Washington marches out, intercepts them, and uh, under the guise of being uh, outfoxed and surrounded manages to get the spear and hide it in the woods where his surveyor's training will let him find it and then when he marches out with Braddock uses that as an opportunity to recover the spear and brings it back to the fort where he places it carefully in the magazine of the fort surrounded by all the gunpowder so that it's uh, safe uh, and then of course issues being issues he he has to leave it there because it's tied to the land and then he comes back in 1794 to double check make sure everything's cool maybe then he gives the orders that says let's just take down this fort it doesn't need to be here put up uh, some nice buildings maybe a church in a bit and uh that that sacred spear that holds with it power over the ohio valley or possibly over america is waiting in the old vault underneath uh the the cumberland episcopal church and you have to once you've uncovered that story you realize that that's the only time Washington was likely to have uh, snaffled that spear from the French and that it, therefore it must be in this inoffensive Episcopalian church's secret tunnely basement and being a, a magic uh, device placed there by gifted Freemason George Washington. He probably placed, you know, robot guardians or uh, Freemason ghosts or something there to, to guard it. And then you have to get past those. Or, or just a whole lot of really robust gunpowder that's still going to be ready to blow up exactly. uh, 200 years later. Well, before uh, the uh, producers of the National Treasure series uh, get a hold of this map and uh, turn it into a uh, the next Nicolas Cage movie, uh, you better rush, uh, hit the link, check out the map, and uh, create your own scenario around it. And while you do that, we're going to sneak out uh, to uh, maybe to a museum, let's say. Yeah, it'd be nice. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep our fort well-maintained by throwing in with such beloved Patreon backers as... Andrea. Jesse Lowe. Tom Abella. Diane Donaldson. And Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover. The string quartet playing in the background, the elevated chit-chat, the clink of glassware, the pitiless gaze through a lorgnette have brought us into the culture hut. And here, beloved Patreon backer Jesse Lowe asks us to pinpoint the plot hooks in the Mary Hill Museum, uh, which was founded by Queen Marie of Romania. Uh, that's a bit of a stretch to say founded, but uh, certainly present at the founding of and previous podcast topic, Lowy Fullerer. 
the creator of um, light dancing and whatnot. Uh, also, museuming. Who knew, right? Right. Our segment on Loie Fuller, who is a historical character that you could meet in the Paris segment of the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, was in episode 405. And uh, here she is popping up uh, yet again. So the Mary Hill Museum is in the Pacific Northwest. It's uh, just 100 miles uh, outside of Portland, Oregon. And uh, it was actually founded. You know, I think if you're going to say founded, it's the guy who built the building and put up all the money who gets to claim that. Um, His name is Samuel Hill. Uh, He was a a businessman who did a lot of development uh, work in that neck of the woods and uh, was a, a strong advocate of good roads. He was he was one of the founders of the Good Roads Society, which is one of those groups that's just lying around waiting to be turned into an unknown armies group, as I have indeed done. Exactly. Inspired by uh, my buddy uh, Rob uh, McDougall, who did that before me. So shout out to Rob. And, and there's a road-related uh, irony coming up uh, fast here. And so he uh, built Mary Hill originally, that's uh, named after his wife, and it was supposed to be a manor that they would live in. But they had um, contractor problems. Uh, a war came in and interrupted the construction. And ultimately, the state of Washington annoyed this advocate of great roads by not building the road he wanted to his house. Yeah. So by the time he's hanging out with his friend, Loie Fuller, she says, hey, why don't you turn it into a uh, museum? And by this point, which is past the era of the Yellow King, we're in the 20s now, uh, she is also pals with uh, Queen Marie of Romania, who is actually, she marries into Romania from the British royal family, but she's sort of an early example of a royal celebrity who is popular not only uh, in Romania, as the uh, wife of uh, Ferdinand I of Romania, she marries him in 1893. Uh, She's the princess for a while, but he becomes king, and therefore she becomes queen in 1914. And she is uh, thought of as a figure of uh, not only great culture, but uh, great glamour as well. And so when she comes to the States on an extended tour in the 20s, she's a big deal. People really care about her. And so it's an exciting thought that you could get her to open your new cultural museum, which has all uh, manner of different things from Native American uh, artifacts to a lot of decorative art. There's some Rodin sculptures. Uh, there's a section of Loewy Fuller memorabilia, and uh, then Queen Marie gives a whole bunch of uh, stuff to the uh, museum as as well. And so, uh, Ken, what uh, uh, what would you do with the Queen Marie, first of all? Well, Queen Marie, as uh, you can tell, someone who arrives in Romania from England in 1893, surely Queen Marie would not be part of Operation Edom, but possibly one of her ladies-in-waiting is an Operation Edom uh, asset attempting to make contact with Dracula and begin that process. So if you wanted to do an 1890s uh, prequel, uh, one of the early Edom operations, you could set it around Queen Marie's travels. And then once Queen Marie has gotten on Dracula's radar, uh, perhaps his conspiracy is threatening Queen Marie of Romania. So when she's off in the foggy, seldom sunny Pacific Northwest, maybe Dracula thinks, what a good opportunity to send my sparklier airs and assigns uh, <laughs> after her. And so uh, Queen Marie's got all kinds of Romanian folk objects and Russian icons, no doubt very efficacious at chasing away vampires. And Dracula thinks, what better way to get all of these things out of the hands of Marie of Romania than have them put in a museum where I will never bother to go because as a 15th century person, my interest in 19th century art is limited. There's a lot of water to cross if you're an empire. Exactly. Um, And then uh, I guess we should mention that Alma de Brettville Spreckles, San Francisco socialite and good, one might even say BFF, of Queen Marie of Romania, then also uh, gave a lot of Queen Marie of Romania's stuff to the Mary Hill Museum instead of to the San Francisco uh, Museum of Art. So perhaps there was some sort of back and forth going on there that caused uh, Alma de Bretville to think very hard uh, about where the Romanian throne and coronation crown and uh, possibly other vampire fighting objects needed to go. Right. Because, in fact, uh, Marie is still in America in 1927 when her husband Ferdinand dies. Her grandson is supposed to take over as king, but her son steps in, usurps him, 
and then uh, he uh, thinks of his mother as a uh, a rival, uh, particularly because she's so popular, and he does his best to uh, uh, tank her popularity. And she winds up, uh, she doesn't stay in the U.S. She goes back to uh, Romania, as expected, and uh, sort of retires to the country and to uh, Pelasor Castle, um, which was uh, built uh, for her by her, ro- her royal father-in-law, and she decorated uh, sumptuously using uh, her uh, Art Nouveau period taste. And uh, to this day is said to be haunted by her ghost, which manifests as the scent of her old-timey uh, perfume. We've been talking about uh, Edom connections. Uh, if Loe Fuller is involved, we also want to think about what she possibly would have wanted to protect uh, by putting in a, a museum of uh, good American scents uh, that is in the middle of a forest without a good road that you can use to get to it. And so uh, she may have, for example, a copy of the play of The Yellow King that she wants to keep away from prying eyes and uh, stick in a nice, safe museum. So that may have been her reason for suggesting to Samuel Hill that he turn his house into a museum. She also uh, donated uh, a number of uh, celebrity hand plaster casts. And uh, it's uh, I was not able to uh, figure out whose hands they belong to because uh, I think somehow in 2020, the Mayor Hill Museum does not regard this as exciting enough to put on their website. Yeah. But that well, that, that's what they do. They get, they lure you in by saying plaster hands from the late teens and early twenties. And, and then they don't tell you. So you have to go to the museum and, and find out. That's exactly it. It's classic. And, and classic I understand marketing. there's a good road now. So you can, yeah. you can actually do that. And so that of course could be one of those casts. Uh, the hands could be uh, of the yellow King could be of uh, uh, Camilla or Casilda or uh, just some, a strange creature, perhaps there could be a pallid mask among the plaster. Absolutely. Uh, that, that would seem that uh, if there's a mask of any kind, it would almost have to be pallid, right? Um, by, by definition, if it's plaster, you Mm -hmm. have to paint it up good to make it non pallid. Oh, and by the way, if people think we're stretching with this Maria of Romania vampire nonsense, one of the castles that she was, uh, retired to by her bad son, King Carol, who was a bad King, and a bad son was Castle Braun in Brazov, literally one of Vlad Tepesh's castles. So take that, everybody. Anyway, where else are we? We're um, oh, we forgot to mention there's a Stonehenge. Yeah, we. we, we I was going to say, have we mentioned the Stonehenge or the mannequins that traveled the world looking for a home and were all placed in uh, the Mary Hill uh, Museum by possibly troublesome fairies? I guess. Uh, nothing creepy about mannequins. Nope. But anyway, yes, fake Stonehenge uh, built by Sam Hill. Uh, he started it in 1918 as a war memorial, uh, and it doesn't get finished until 1929 because it apparently takes just as long to build a Stonehenge out of concrete as it does out of Welsh bluestones. And uh, Sam Hill. Well, again, contractor problems. Yes, which I assume they had in the in the Bronze Age as well, right? When Merlin is standing there, he's like tapping his wrist, and the demons are like, "Oh, sorry, man, we had another order for the Bluestones, got backed up, and then it was Easter. You can't expect us to work on Easter." So yeah, it was a big problem. But yes, they they have uh, uh, one of these Stonehenge replicas in America is right there in Mary Hill, Washington. And uh, if you are a collector of that, you can you can go uh, see that. There's chess sets all over the place. So if you're if you want a, um, a chess set that was used as a symbolic or magically connective uh, battleground uh, between East and West or between, uh, oh, I don't know, a vampire and the British government. Maybe one of those chess sets contains a magical charge or contains a code uh, in, in where its pieces are set up that uh, informs uh, the, the viewer of, uh, of, of what's going on in Romania right now. Right. And if you uh, doubt uh, Samuel Hill as a maker of good magic, good government, uh, peaceful uh, statuary. He also built the Peace Arch, which is an archway between the state of Washington and uh, British Columbia, which celebrates the peaceful border between my land kin and yours. Exactly. So there's all manner of of things, as with any good museum, and pretty much any of it you can dig through. There's Rodin's Minotaur, 
So maybe the Rodin's Minotaur contains some sort of monster from the heart of Paris that uh, got excised during the Yellow King times and is now peacefully slumbering away in Washington until such time as bad uh, magic happens or someone breaks one of those Romanian icons that keeps it under control. Yes, because, of course, you can meet Rodin in the Yellow King as well. Um, well, I think on that note, we have found the many plot hooks in this museum and can uh, move on toward our uh, final hut and or huts. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of hut, the hut of mystery between the paranormal, the magical, and the... Oh, wait a minute. The alien cat that screams on the moor has uh, slunk away in the corner there. The uh, Both the gray alien and the Nordic alien are just trying not to uh, meet the uh, eye contact of the uh, police officers who have entered because there's crime tape everywhere. Ken, this is a combo, a Liptony hut and crime blotter, because we're going to talk about Ira Einhorn also known as the Unicorn or the Unicorn Killer. And we mentioned him in passing a couple of episodes back when we were talking about Jacques Vallée, who, uh, the uh, ufologist who knew Einhorn kind of in passing during the 60s. And so he's a, a sort of one of those counterculture scenesters with one foot in the paranormal, one foot in the environmental movement, uh, and wound up becoming a, a notorious murderer. So, yes. uh, And neither of those feet was washed because he was also a filthy hippie, Robin. Uh, he, <laughs> yes, he's. Uh, if you look at pictures of him at the time, he's, uh, he's pretty frizzy. So he uh, first kind of uh, appears uh, in the mid-60s. He's uh, teaching at Temple University and uh, between 64 and 65. And he's at the front wave of the counterculture because he's dismissed for turning his students onto uh, pot and acid. And uh, in 1970, his main non-murderous claim to fame occurs when he co-founds Earth Day, which you uh, listeners may have uh, have celebrated in a spirit of good cheer, uh, not knowing the dark side of uh, one of its uh, creators. Yes, and I, I suppose we should say right now that obviously he was into a lot of things. He also organized the first Be-In in Philadelphia. And because he was sort of a self-aggrandizing, charismatic uh, guy who put himself forward as the leader of the hippie community in Philadelphia, he wound up getting a lot of interest from the media and then a lot of money from corporate and political leaders who wanted him to be their uh, channel into the youth movement and uh, certainly uh, dined out on that and made a lot of that. So nowadays, Earth Day says Ira Einhorn has nothing to do with it. Sure, he was on all the literature and spoke at the first thing and was the co-founder of the event, but he didn't really do any of the work. He was just swanning in uh, using his gifts for publicity to take credit for the good non-murderous people who gave us Earth Day. So, Which might, might well be true. I would say that there is probably a lot of truth to both things, that both Ira Einhorn thought we should have an Earth Day and that other people did all the actual hard work involved in Earth Day. I, I see no reason we can't give everyone involved credit for Earth Day. Um, by this time, he is getting very much into the, the paranormal. He's looking into psychic research and telepathy and all the other uh, good stuff that's involved in that. And then in 1972, he meets a, a young woman named Holly Maddox. And uh, it's not 
as awful as it sounds, she's only like seven years younger than him. But since he's a, uh, a monster and an abuser, it's still very bad. So they uh, are together for five years during which friends are reporting all manner of, of injuries and, and, and uh, arguments and cheating around and, and being a, a jerk on the part of Einhorn. She breaks up with him uh, and goes off to New York city to hook up with a different man. And uh, this sends Ira Einhorn into a towering rage. He threatens to throw all of her belongings into the street unless she comes back to get them. And she did in fact, come back uh, on September 9th, 1977 and then was never seen again. And uh, when the cops came by to ask Ira Einhorn about, well, she said she was coming back. She came back. Uh, we have people who saw her going into the building. What happened? And Ira Einhorn and said, "People smelling something, something bad coming out of your apartment." No, this is this is before the bad smelling. This is when they're asking him uh, where she was. And his his alibi, Robin, is he was in the shower, which is not believable on any level. So uh, they they go away. And then the bad smells start and the weird drips from the ceiling. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the building manager sends plumbers to check it out. The, the plumbers are not allowed into a locked closet, uh, by Ira Einhorn. They go away. The smell continues. Eventually the cops show up 18 months later and find Maddox's body, depending on how you, uh, what source you read, semi mummified or decomposing in a steamer trunk, uh, locked in that locked closet. And of course, if he was a, a true believer in Earth Day, he would have composted the body, not left it in his closet. So already Ira Einhorn uh, violating his most sacred tenets. He says uh, to the cops, you found what you found. He is, as I mentioned, very, very politically influential. His lawyer is a fellow named Arlen Specter, who will eventually become a uh, senator from Pennsylvania. <laughs> At this point, he is merely a high-powered lawyer who gets the bail knocked down to $40,000. And in that day, as in all days, you can pay 10% of your bail and uh, get out of uh, jail. So he paid $4,000. And, and by he paid. <laughs> yes, I mean, his his uh, main patroness, Barbara Bronfman, a Montreal socialite who had married into the Seagram family of distillers of mediocre whiskey and was also into uh, UFOs and, and psychic phenomena, and that's how she knew Einhorn. And then, of course, guess what? Right before his murder trial is supposed to begin, he skips town and goes to Europe. And he uh, goes for 16 years in Europe. He gets married. He starts a new life. Uh, but uh, eventually, in 1997, he's arrested in France. And there's a long controversy over extradition. After Barbara Bronfman reads a book about him murdering Holly Maddox and says, maybe I should stop paying his European bills and drops a dime on him to the cops. So yes, that's, so um, uh, that, that's, that's what leads, that's what leads to the arrest of, uh, of Einhorn. And then he fights his extradition in court for the better part of, I guess, five years and is finally extradited after yeah. attempting to cut his own throat. Yeah. He, he makes the argument that even though he's not charged with the death penalty, that because the U S is a death penalty state that they might pull a switcheroo on him. And therefore due to uh, France's policy of not extraditing to places that have the death penalty, which uh, other countries do as well. He manages to drag that out quite a ways, uh, of course, given aided by the power of French uh, bureaucracy. Yes. Um, he also attempts to um, say that since he was tried in absentia, that it was not a legitimate trial. And so the Pennsylvania legislature has to pass a special law that says that if you're convicted in absentia, you can get a retrial. And uh, he comes back. And at that retrial, uh, Arlen Specter, having, I think, conveniently died in the interim, he represents himself. And his defense is that uh, Holly Maddox was killed by the CIA in order to silence Ira Einhorn about their psychic research that Ira Einhorn was going to blow the gaff on the CIA and um, uh, they warned him off by killing Holly Maddox and that he realizing. Oh, sorry, sorry, Ken. Uh, Arlen Specter dies in 2012. Oh, so he, he was just uh, dead to Ira Einhorn, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he was a senator by that point. He had better right. things to do. He had other stuff to do. But anyway, he, he was dead to me. The, the larger point being that uh, he uh, attempted to say that the CIA uh, had killed Holly Maddox. He found the body and realizing that it was a setup hid the body rather than going to the cops. And then the whole comedy of errors continued. The Pennsylvania court 
did not buy this story and sentenced him to life in prison. Yes. The jury took two hours yeah. to go. Nope. Yes. One hour was them deciding what sandwiches they wanted, I suspect. And then he gets bounced into prison. Uh, he appeals it to the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, which says, don't even try that. And uh, off he goes to a uh, prison where he died in uh, this year, in April, in fact, of natural causes, because by then he was 79 years old and in prison. So I guess that's as natural causes. Yes, comes. And he'd been in a prison hospital ward for four years. So. Right. Now, this is a case where you're not at all uh, traducing a real life uh, person uh, by uh, depicting them as, as a uh, horrible monster because he was. And so yeah. <laughs> uh, his story, I think, enables that we can fill in some blanks and uh, add uh, additional uh, stuff to have uh, a scenario. So, for example, in Fall of Delta Green, uh, he could be all up to all sorts of other horrible things uh, in the late 60s and uh, 70s, up, leading up to his Earth Day thing long before the actual murder he committed. I guess at this point, though, we've left out the part that he's called the unicorn killer, but... There's no sort of uh, David Fincher-esque uh, colorful reason for that, except that his uh, name translates as one horn. So that, that is sort of the, right. the, uh, the, the press. And he also, I think, used to call himself the unicorn when he was in Philadelphia hippie circles. Oh, there you go. Because well, he was magic and stuff. Because he was magical. Well, yeah. if he called himself the unicorn, he was he was setting himself up for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so what might fall of Delta Green characters uh, uh, wind up uh, doing with Ira Einhorn uh, in the uh, late sixties uh, before he commits the uh, the murder we know about. Well, if we're if we're going with our our position of Ira Einhorn as a guy who talks big but does none of the work, I think that what he is is sort of a filthier, scabbier, somehow even worse Aleister Crowley, uh, in that he is the guy who knows the guy. In Philadelphia. So if they're trying to find out um, the identity of the mysterious G in Philadelphia, who is uh, mentioned in Charles Dexter Ward as uh, one of the necromancers who is then not blown up by uh, the, the mercy and wizard and is still going on as far as Lovecraft cares. Uh, let's say you're hunting the I, identity. I need to back up here. I'm getting so Philadelphia is where Gritty is from, right? Yes. Yeah. We've established that. And there's a mysterious necromancer. A mysterious named G. G. Yeah. Uh, okay. Continue. Yeah. So, if the player characters are investigating the identity of the mysterious G, Einhorn, I think, serves as a pointer into that circle that he's, yeah, sure, he's had sex with corpses and, and is uh, part of that whole occult resurrecty rave scene, but he doesn't do the magic. He doesn't do the hard work. He just swans in and takes credit and and uh, acts as sort of a middleman. So if they want to, um, let's say they've dug something up in, in the old specter graveyard that uh, casts a dim light on someone's ancestor, well, Ira Einhorn knows a way to sell that and get some money for it. So maybe he's uh, a grave robber middleman uh, black marketeer for the ghouls. Maybe he's tied in with the necromancy guys. Maybe he's got something else going on with the whole uh, mystical geometry of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, of course, famously laid out by a lot of Moravian mystics, especially in the western uh, parts of the city. So maybe there's some sort of old school uh, Yogg-Sothothery going on. Again, that Einhorn is not doing himself, but is sort of getting involved with and, and part of and his interest in the paranormal and in psychic phenomena makes him even possibly maybe the the the, the um uh, the agents are like we got to bust this guy he's he's having sex with corpses he's selling grave goods we've got to get him and then they start to move to get him and majestic says oh no he's a he's a source he's he's protected he's a ci for us you can't do it. And so they get the frustration of, ah, we can't touch this guy. That must have been the frustration of literally everyone in Philadelphia after he skipped town as the murderer. And uh, do you want him to, to have actual psychotronic scoop in, in the Delta Green universe? I, I think that that's something that you can, I mean, certainly if uh, in your universe, the Majestic 12 guys or Majestic 12 subcontractors have loose lips and let stuff slip. Einhorn is the guy who would have heard about that and be retailing it to you. I, I, you could even say that maybe Einhorn is, you know, acting as a, as a feed for Pisces or one of the non-American uh, mystical units that he's in addition to everything else wrong with him. He's, he's a traitor. And because he's connected to Barbara Bronfman, if you wanted to have him tied to Canada's uh, M group, 
uh, maybe that that's what he's doing. He's playing all sides against the middle, all for Ira Einhorn's benefit. Also in the Ezoterras, uh, since he lives until 2020, you can have your characters uh, visit him in uh, the prison hospital ward to get information about an old case involving the, uh, the outer dark. And uh, you can get there uh, just in time. Uh, perhaps you're, you're there when uh, something crawls out of the outer, outer dark to uh, uh, deliver his uh, uh, long overdue evisceration. And uh, then you can uh, move on from there. So you could use him as a, uh, a now uh, aging and uh, toothless former operative, perhaps a member of an Ezoterra cell from back then, who is now running that, uh, that cell so many years later. Yeah, but, uh, maybe the, um, the fact that he uh, was living under another man's name in Europe is some sort of a, a switcheroo magic and that uh, that guy had uh, some sort of outer dark connection and that Einhorn was sort of um, once more drawing the, the, the attraction acting as the lightning rod for that. Oh, speaking of Philadelphia acting as the lightning rod for that outer dark uh, energy while the other guy, the real uh, Malin uh, could go around doing uh, bad magics. Well, once we've got uh, scenario hooks for uh, multiple uh, gumshoe games, I think we can say that our uh, mission here is done for this week, but I believe the nature of missions is that there'll be another one coming up a mere seven days from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Chip in for operating expenses so we don't have to deaccession our collection by joining such backers as... Ian Nystrom. Jake Moss. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. And Theron Bretz. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.